It's Tuesday, Wrestling Tuesday, right here on the Under the Hood podcast and also on ESPN.com. I'm Jonathan Hood. Thanks so much for being with us. Happy holidays, wherever you might be. Thanks so much for listening and downloading the podcast. This special Tuesday, Wrestling Tuesday, is one that uh, we're going to remember for a while because we've had three wrestling figures pass away within a month. The Dynamite Kid of the British Bulldogs passed away just recently. Dynamite Kid was a terrific wrestler, uh, part of that British Bulldogs uh, tag team with Davey Boy Smith. And Dynamite Kid before the British Bulldogs was a terrific wrestler from Calgary, did a great job in Stampede Wrestling. Wrestling today with guys that are 5'8", 5'9", you imagine Dynamite Kid today? He'd be World Heavyweight Champion, I think. Larry the X Henning passing away as well, the um, father of Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning as well as St. Louis Booker, and a guy that has been around for a long time when St. Louis Wrestling was in place. Um, that is Larry Matisic, who promoted wrestling in St. Louis and the southern Illinois area. St. Louis Wrestling was so important. It's a powerful territory back in the day. And so this podcast, will get a chance to talk to a Pro Wrestling Hall of Famer, Mike Mooneyham, a pro wrestling historian in Mike Mooneyham, and also a friend of mine, Courtney Cross. Courtney Cross is from St. Louis, grew up with St. Louis Wrestling. We'll talk to them both right here on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. As always, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Man, it's my pleasure. Glad to be on it. Mike, uh, I want to ask you about uh, about three figures that passed away just recently. I'll start with the Dynamite Kid from the British Bulldogs. I said in our open that, you know, if if Dynamite Kid, Tommy Billington, was around today, that he probably would be in line to be a world heavyweight champion because of his size. And during that, during his time, you know, there's a lot of promoters didn't like him because of, because he was not this big guy. He wasn't Hulk Hogan, but I think that he would really resonate today, wouldn't he? Um, yeah. In fact, he was, he was so far ahead of his time. This was back in the late seventies, early eighties when you just didn't see anybody in the wrestling business, uh, working a style like dynamite did. He was uh, he was rev- he was he was very revolutionary. Um, did uh, you know this high impact, high flying style, and mixed a lot of uh, what would be uh, a Japanese influence along with some lucha libre and a little bit of European. Of course, he came over from England. He trained at Snake Pit. Um, these different styles, and he sort of melded them all into one. And, and just had this incredible uh, style of wrestling that was copied. In, in later years, you would see all these guys start copying Dynamite Kid. Um, you know, Chris Benoit was a huge, huge Dynamite Kid mark. He copied, you know, he tried to imitate his walk, his swagger, mm-hmm. his style of wrestling, even wore the same type of uh, ring attire that Dynamite would wear. And um, uh, he would really set the stage for, for, you know, the lighter, the cruiserweight-type wrestlers who would uh, be very acrobatic but could also wrestle a really good, you know, uh, a really good physical match style. Um, And just opened up the doors for a lot of people. You know, tragically, the thing about Dynamite, um, you know, his star lasted far too short. By the time he went to WWE and became part of the British Bulldogs, even then, you know, he had put on like probably forty or fifty pounds from his uh, original weight, and the at, while the added bulk really, you know, had such an impressive physique for his size, it probably slowed him down a little bit. Albeit, 
they were probably the greatest tag team in WWE at that time. And, and uh, of course, we all know the story, the injuries, and uh, you know the reliance on steroids and painkillers and the drugs kind of spelled his downfall. And it's just tragic that such a great star, who pound for pound, and, and many many wrestlers of that time said that pound for pound, he was he was the greatest worker in the world at that period of time. Um, it's just sad how you know his life ended, mostly reclusive, living back in England and confined to a wheelchair for the last 15, 20 years of his life. Mike, I also want to ask you about Larry the Axe Henning. Uh, growing up in Chicago, growing up on Vern's TV in the AWA, I saw a lot of Larry Henning, so I know exactly uh, who he was. And oh, yeah. It might have been toward the middle to the back end of his career, but the point is, is that it was a seamless transition from Larry... I think he did some broadcasting here and there for Vern, and then, of course, here comes Kurt. Um, what are your memories of, of Larry in the AWA, and how good was he in the ring? Larry Hennig was really, really good. Um, one, of the, one of my first um, remembrances of Larry was back in the 60s when he teamed with Harley Race. And at the time, uh, they were known as Pretty Boy, Larry Hennig, and Handsome Harley Race. Mm-hmm. And they were regarded as one of the top teams in the world at that time. And what I remember most of all, they had a uh, this blazing feud with Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher. Um, anybody who's been around the AWA uh, any length of time um, may not have seen necessarily seen them back then in the '60s, but they've heard heard of Larry and, and Harley as a tag team. And man, they just tore that AWA circuit up. I don't know how much blood they spilled, but I'm sure it was enough to fill a blood bank. Um, they had some of the best matches at that time of anyone in tag team wrestling. And uh funny thing is, Bruiser and Crusher, you know, really brawlers, they used to refer to Harley and Larry as the Dolly sisters. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, you can imagine calling uh, two guys as tough as, as Harley Race and Larry hitting Dolly sisters. But um, they got away with it, and... You know, Larry was just, I mean, he was a bull of a man. You know, he stood like 6'3", weighed around 300 pounds. And he really was a star everywhere he went. Probably the thing that hurt him most, and maybe not hurt him, but his his overall stature in the wrestling business, he he pretty much stayed close to home in his home state of Minnesota for most of his career. Um, But he certainly had a lot of success there. You know, he was a a long-time foil for uh, Vern Gagne. They had a great series over the years, and... Even though they had a great series in the ring, their business uh, relationship is not as good. Um, I think Larry always had sort of a sort of a you know a, a major gripe with Vern and his business dealings. But um, yeah, Larry was Larry's great, and you know produced a, a, a great son in Kurt Henning, Mister Perfect, and as a grandson, Curtis Axel, who. You know, he's been with WWE for a while. But the thing I remember more, most about Larry is not just how tough he was in the ring, but how gentle and, and what a good guy he was outside the ring. Um, you couldn't find a nicer guy in the business. Uh, Larry always had a smile on his face and a good story to tell. And, um, you know, everyone everyone really looked up to Larry. He was just a, a devoted family man who was married to his wife for I think more than 60 years, you know, just an all-around good guy. Mm-hmm. And also from St. Louis Wrestling, Larry Matisik, um, worked very closely with Sam Munchnik in the St. Louis Wrestling Territory. 
And it's a it's a territory, Mike, that really intrigues me. I'm glad that there's some videos on YouTube of being able to go back and take a look at the, you know, the the fights yeah. for the Missouri title. And, and I, I just think that the way obviously St. Louis wrestling, for those that don't know, is just so very um, different than other presentations. You have yes. women in formal dresses and men with their with their suits and you're eating oh. and you're smoking at the tables. Just it was very yeah. interesting layout, wasn't it? Yeah, really classy. And, of course, St. Louis has sort of been the wrestling mecca for, you know, it was a wrestling mecca back then. Sam Muchnick, longtime promoter, he uh, he promoted in St. Louis, and he was a longtime president of the National Wrestling Alliance. So if you could make it to St. Louis, you were, um, you know, you were sort of a made man in the wrestling business. Um, great events at the Keel Auditorium and then wrestling at the Chase. That was one of the top TV shows as far as wrestling was for years. And Larry Matisik was uh, Sam's longtime right-hand man and the ringside announcer uh, for wrestling at the Chase, which aired Sunday mornings on KPLR TV in St. Louis from the late 60s, I think around 69, all the way to 1983. And it was one of the highest-rated wrestling shows in the country, and a lot of that is was due to to Larry because uh, Larry had so many contacts back then, and he was so um, he was he was really like I said he was he was Joe's uh, I mean Sam's right hand guy, and uh, you know promoter Booker did the program, wrote for magazines, the ringside announcer. And uh, he just played so many roles and saw so many greats. You know, if you St. Louis, that's where all the NWA World Champions came through, from Thez to uh, Dory Funk Jr. and Kaniski and Harley, and all the way you know to Ric Flair. And so all of the top talent had to come through St. Louis. And Larry, I've I've I first started corresponding with Larry back in the '60s, and that's going way back. Mm-hmm. And Larry was doing the St. Louis programs, and I know we trade programs and stuff like that back then. But um, you know, Larry's had many. He, he's really been a vital cog in the wrestling business. After um, the thing in St. Louis, uh, the St. Louis wrestling scene sort of split up a little bit. He uh, he later worked for Vince McMahon, um, but it was never you know it was never quite the same. And he quit Vince back in the early 90s. And, you know, then he wrote some really good books. He was very good friends with Bruiser Brody. Um, wrote probably the definitive uh, biography of Brody. It was called Brody, the Triumph and Tragedy of Wrestling's Rebel. Mm-hmm. Um, he co-authored that with Bruiser's widow, Barbara Goodish. And then he wrote Wrestling at the Chase, the inside story of Sam Muchnick and the Legends of Professional Wrestling. So, you know, he became an acclaimed author as well. And, um, you know, it's really tough to see Larry go through all of his health issues the last few years, even though, thing about Larry, he remained active in the business um, almost until, uh, until the end. You know, he continued to support and promote shows in the St. Louis area, um, even as he, you know, battled the spinal stenosis, and um, which he had he had been diagnosed with that back in his 50s. and had a series of strokes, and his you know his health just declined rapidly over the last year. But uh, Larry was a good guy, and you know, will I certainly remember Larry as 
uh, an important part of the wrestling business for many years. And, you know, a friend over the years, and like I said, we started corresponding back in the 60s, so we went back, we went back a long way. Mike, it sounds like from some of the things I've seen from St. Louis wrestling that, and you mentioned a lot of the stars coming through that territory, it sounds like it's, it was similar to Memphis without the Gaga. That makes sense? Yeah, 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 it it, it was. It was, it was a place where top guys, um, uh, you know, like I said, if you made, if you could, if you made it in St. Louis, you were well on your way. And to be an NWA world champion, you pretty much had to prove yourself uh, first by winning the Missouri heavyweight title. That was one of the sort of the prerequisites for the NWA world title belt at the time. But then, you know, you got the headline cards in St. Louis, and there wasn't a lot of crazy stuff going on in St. Louis. It was really just good wrestling matches. Uh, you, you know, you didn't see any barbed wire matches and gimmick matches like that in St. Louis. They were had top wrestlers in the in the uh, in the world performing there. But uh, you didn't see a lot of gimmick stuff, you know. It was uh, it was it was sort of the elite of wrestling. It was the NWA, and that's where uh, that's where the best in the NWA performed. Mike, you you re- recently wrote something regarding the passing of President Bush and his involvement with wrestling. So, did, so how well did he know Paul Bosch in Houston? Oh, he knew him. He knew him really well back from the early days when you know Bush. Uh, uh, was in Houston running for the the Senate. You know, this is back probably in the '60s. Um, he uh, he and Paul Bosch developed a really close relationship. Both both were you know were heroes in World War II. They had a lot in common. Paul Bosch was very active in the Houston community, so they kind of met uh, with that kind of relationship. But then, you know, George Bush, you know, he really liked wrestling. He, he, I wouldn't say he was a, certainly not a hardcore fan, but he kept up with it. And a lot of it was through Houston and his relationships. Uh, that's where he met Ernie Ladd when Big Cat was playing for the Houston Oilers back in the 60s. And um, Big Cat would go on to, you know, be part of not only uh, President Bush's well, then he was in the Senate, and then he became vice president, and then president, and then George W. Bush. You know, he was part of all of those committees. He was very close to the Bush family. Um, and, of course, the relationship he had with uh, with Ric Flair and Wahoo, you know, those were stories in itself. So there was quite a connection between pro wrestling and, and George Bush, uh, George H.W. Bush. Mike, uh, what are you working on? I know you. Last time we spoke, you were working on something for 2019. Can you reveal it yet? Yeah, um, actually, we had a meeting about it today. It's it's a it's it's a book. Uh, it's going to be titled "Final Bell: Remembering Matt's Le- the Matt Legends," and it's going to be some of my. It's a compilation of some of my favorite columns, and some of my favorite columns have been my tributes to people I've known in the business after. You know, after they've passed, and um, these were pa- these were columns that have been published over the years in my newspaper, the Post and Courier in Charleston, um, on uh, thirty to thirty-five. Uh, like I said, of my favorite uh, columns, and these are like tributes uh, to men like Johnny Valentine, Wahoo McDaniel, Luthez. The list goes on, um, and hopefully, it should be out in. Uh, 
sometime in January. It may be February, but we're shooting for January right now. I hope you come back on again and talk more about it so people know I'd where to, to be able to pick it up. Um, last question, Mike, and I appreciate your time. I, I, uh, I, I'd be remiss if I did not ask you about something that Eric Bischoff said on his 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff podcast. <laughs> Your name came up and, and, and my, 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 my head raised up. I said, Mike Mooneyham, what's he saying about Mike? And, and clearly he has, he had a disconnect with you during his time in WCW regarding how you wrote about the company and your, uh, relationship with uh, Ric Flair. And so, yeah, can you, you talk know, about that? It's funny you mentioned that because I had a conversation with someone today that out of the blue asked me about that. Mm-hmm. And um, several people had emailed me, and I, I didn't watch the podcast, but I know it's one that, um, that Conrad Thompson does with Eric called 83 Weeks. Yes. And uh, he really, this fan sent me sort of a transcript of it, and I thought it was really funny. Uh, it looks like Conrad led the, led the conversation off with asking Eric, what's the deal with you and Mike Mooneyham? Why did you not like Mike? Everybody likes Mike Mooneyham except you. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so did you see this? Did you, did you see hear the podcast? I did hear it, yes. You did hear it. Okay, so you know the, the context of what. Yeah, and, and I think Eric was saying um, that, that I might have been the biggest Ric Flair mark in history, which this dates back, I remember back, I think it was like 1996, it was, a, it was more than 20 years ago, when, um, when I was interviewed on this radio show, and then I think Eric was interviewed later, and he might have said the same thing, that, that Mike Mooneyham was the biggest mark. Well, I wrote later that, you know, I took that as a, as a big compliment. I said, isn't everybody? You know, I mean, sure, I'm a Ric Flair mark. Everybody I know is a Ric Flair mark who wouldn't be, you know, a mark for probably the greatest wrestler in the history of the business. Right. So, I, you know, I turned into sort of a joke. Now, all kidding aside, Eric and I did have some differences back then. I had, you know, I had questions about some of the things, the business um, decisions he made at WCW, but I wasn't, I was certainly not the only one. But, you know, having a weekly column and a voice in the business, I guess I was sort of vocal about it. And nothing really bad, but um, uh, I think Eric said in this recent interview that uh, um, he his, his differences with Rick were more business-related and that I didn't understand some of the decisions, the behind-the-scenes decisions that were made, and and stuff like that. And I understood those decisions pretty well because I, you know, I had people inside that company that, uh, you know, would would tell me stuff off the record and stuff I never revealed. But I I knew the business pretty well, what was going on behind the scenes. So, you know, that was that. But um, I found it funny because. He did say at the end of this recent podcast that uh, um, I certainly don't carry that around with me now. If I met him on the streets, I certainly would say hi and buy him a beer. <laughs> but back then, he kind of got under my skin. <laughs> so, you, know, I, you know, I guess if I did get under Eric's skin back then, I was probably doing my job. That's right. <laughs> because, you know, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I have no beef with Eric, and I don't think he has any with me. It's a long time, and 
uh, you know, we we tend to get over that stuff. There were, but there were quite a few guys with beefs with Eric back then, if I remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. As we're living that on his podcast every week. Yeah, and it's funny how all this stuff, you know, all these years ago is brought up now uh, with all these podcasts. Um, oh, my gosh. And I'd forgotten about it till till somebody mentioned it to me. He said, yeah, Eric's mentioning your name. I said, that's good. Tell him hello. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you could follow Mike on Twitter at by Mike Mooneyham. Go ahead. I just remember something funny, Eric. During all of this, and this like lasted several years, the thing with me and Eric, yeah, he, uh, he called up my... He called me at home once about something I'd written, I'm sure. And uh, my my oldest son answered the phone, and uh, <laughs> he said, well, young man, what's your name? I know your dad, and what, but what's your name? And my son said, Dusty. And I got the phone, and he said, Eric said, don't tell me. <laughs> I said, no, no, he's not named after the American dream. That's, you know, that name came first. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he kept a wary eye of me all the time. You know, I probably thought it was a conspiracy, you know. But <laughs> he said, don't tell me. <laughs> no. That's the best. Yeah, what do you want now, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, every time I go to your Twitter, Mike, I'm able to relive some of the great moments that I wish I was at uh, because you get well, the, you you know, the best that's, pictures. That, that's what I do, Jonathan. I try to keep that old school torch alive. I try to keep it burning. So, um, you know, as long as I can. That, In fact, that's one of the things I wrote in my recent book. Um, I had several guys over the years ask me, because I guess if I'm known for any anything, it's you know the probably the tributes I do to my friends in the business who have passed and stuff. And several guys said, "Well, when I go, who's gonna who's gonna write my obit? Who's gonna write about me?" And I said, "I'll try to I'll try to hang in there as long as I can, brother." <laughs> and uh, sadly enough, you know, some of those guys are gone now, and I, I felt it uh, I felt it important that I get their stories out. Um, and these are. These are columns as they originally appeared uh, online or in the um, in print in our in our local newspaper. Well, Mike, as always, it's good to talk to you here in Chicago. And as that book uh, starts to develop, we definitely want to have you on in 2019 early. Uh, it's, it'll be my pleasure, Jonathan. I appreciate it. You're All right, welcome. we'll talk to you soon. All right, Jonathan. Take care. Take care, Bye-bye. buddy. We turn now to my little brother. Courtney Cross, who grew up in St. Louis, watching St. Louis wrestling, and he is with us here on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Hello, Courtney. Hey, Jonathan. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, sad news. I wish I was talking to you with uh, better news, but sad news about the passing of Larry Matisik. I was just talking to Mike Mooneyham, a pro wrestling historian about St. Louis wrestling, but I had to have you on to talk about it because... Larry Madison just passed away. What are your memories of him working along with Sam Munchnik for that uh, St. Louis territory? You know, St. Louis wrestling is, is is special. I always felt that way, at least. You know, I, I I was born in Chicago, but I grew up here in St. Louis, and my childhood memories of St. Louis wrestling always were watching wrestling at the Chase. And wrestling at the Chase Park Plaza Hotel was just and I remember all me and my friends, all we did, we would stay out all night and just hang out and have fun. But then we were always home in time to catch that late showing of wrestling at the chase on Saturdays. And then it would re-air on Sunday and we'd watch it again. And we'd go to each other's house and just hang out and watch 
you know, Ric Flair and Ted DiBiase and uh, Bruiser Brody and Dick the Bruiser. And so those are, are, are my all-time favorite memories of St. Louis wrestling. So th- that's, this was on, as I looked it up, KPLR-TV. Okay. What what was that? What affiliate was that? ABC or NBC affiliate or independent? No, it was a it was a local affiliate. Later on down the road, it became part of the CW network. But that was long, long after the fact. Um, it was just a little independent um, station right there. It's actually right behind the Chase Park Plaza Hotel in in Central West End. Okay, okay. I was I was wondering about that, but it, and it's interesting, Courtney, talking to some people about St. Louis wrestling, and and how people really loved loved the idea that um, it was a territory. You talked about some of the names that were there. Do you remember some of the matches? Do you remember matches that you saw as a kid? Yes. So um, I think my favorite, all time favorite, wrestling at the Chase match had to be uh, Harley Race versus David Von Erich. And if my memory serves me correct, it was the first time that David Von Erich had used the Iron Claw, and he got Harley Race clean in the middle of the ring, blood coming out of his head the whole nine, and he pinned Harley Race of wrestling the chase that's with the cra- Iron Claw. That's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. You know, it's been said for many years that, that um, David Von Erich probably was the best of all the Von Erichs, and that probably had a chance at that NWA title. I wonder if Harley would have dropped the title to David if David would have lived. I think he might have. If not him, I think Ric Flair might have. That's that's how that's how good David was, right? Yeah, he was he was really good. He was really good, and and I believe you know from from my recollection, he was the was the franchise player. He was the one that the Von Erichs were pinning their hopes on. You know, they still had Kerry and Kevin in the wings, but David was the one that was supposed to carry the Von Erich banner. You know, over the years, I've I've softened my stance on Harley Race because I I, look, I saw Harley Race uh, go through territory to territory, but he always wrestled slowly. Now, not not during the '80s when we were coming up, not everybody was just like rip running and going across the ring and doing these high flying acts. But I think I've appreciated Harley more now as a, as an adult than I was as a kid. What, what do you What do you remember about Race, especially as NWA champion in the territory? You know, Harley Race, I, I was not a fan of Harley Race. Right. You know, he did a good job with me. He, he he did his job with me. I was not a Harley Race fan. And and you're right, he was very slow and very methodical about the, his wrestling pace. I mean, he had good matches. You know, I, I do believe that he had good matches. But his, his style was very slow uh, and methodical. I mean, there's really no other way to explain it. But, you know, but he was charismatic, though. He had some charm and some style about him. And, you know, I've got a friend, uh, a young lady, not that young, but a young lady who who was big on Harley Race. She thought Harley Race was like like one of the sexiest people alive. Like he could be on People Magazine. <laughs> that was her guy. Hold on a second. Wait, wait. Harley Race had a perm and, and, and like these big ass sidebirds. Harley Race was <laughs> I don't think Harley was going for sexy. He was handsome. He was handsome Harley Race, but I don't know if he was I don't, I don't think he was going for that either, but it worked with her though. <laughs> she was she bought it hook line and sinker. Harley Race was her guy. I'm gonna take you to bed and I'm gonna <laughs> plant you in the ring when I get you at the chase. Really? Yeah, that was her guy. <laughs> to this day she stands by it. Ted DiBiase also came to the territory. Do you remember seeing him on TV? Yes, 
Ted DiBiase was one of my favorites back then, and uh, I had the opportunity to to meet him and speak with him at a Comic Con up in Chicago, and told him that I used to watch him at Wrestling the Chase, and his eyes just rolled back in his head, and a big smile came up on his face, and you know it was his words exactly was that you know if you didn't wrestle in St. Louis, it wasn't because you couldn't; it's just because you weren't good. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Anybody that anybody that was anybody wrestled through the St. Louis territory at some point in their career, um, and and Ted DiBiase was a was a tremendous wrestler. You know, most people just remember him as the Million Dollar Man, but he was so much more than that long before that. I think the two announcers, Larry Matisik, as we just talked about, who was a promoter to work with Sam Munchnik, who who was the the announcer that you heard as a kid, and. Joe Gargiola, I believe, also was an announcer mm-hmm. for St. Louis back in the day as well, was he not? Yes, he was. How about that? I mean, think about that. There's a guy there who was a good baseball player and is actually doing commentary for St. Louis back in the day. But Larry, but I, I continue to read more and more about Larry, not only just as the play-by-play guy, the announcer, but also I think he started promoting matches when he was 15 uh, wow. in, that, in that southern Illinois, St. Louis area. And so he was like... Munchnik's right hand man, and they put they cranked down some great cards. As I'm, I'm reading about this stuff, yeah, there were you know. So we had wrestling at the Chase, and then when when they had the big matches outside of that, you you went over to the Checker Dome mm-hmm. where the Blues played. You went over to the Checker Dome, and and that's where all the big matches went. And I remember I've, I've seen so many Nature Boy Ric Flair matches at the Checker Dome, and. Uh, you know the Road Warriors and uh, Wahoo McDaniel and like I said, Dick the Bruiser, Jerry the Crusher, Blackwell. I saw all those guys over at the Checker Dome and at the, at the Chase Park Plaza Hotel. And like I said, my my childhood memories are full of just classic, classic matches. Bruiser Brody with his furry boots just kicking everybody in the face, and you know, you know, one of my. So I told you my favorite match was. David Von Erich and Harley Race. But one of my favorite moments at wrestling at the Chase was Ric Flair was the champ. He was wrestling, you know, a jobber, no, nobody special. But he had a match coming up with Dick the Bruiser. And Dick came out to ringside and took his robe and put it on and was just strutting around the <laughs> ring like he was doing his best Ric Flair impersonation. Right. And then he took the robe off and he just slamming it on the ground and wiping his backside with it. And then he took the belt and just left. <laughs> and they were like, if you don't give Flair his belt back, you're going to lose your match. And, and like Flair's in the ring. Try, he's trying to get out the ring, but the jobber won't let him out the ring. So his Flair's like reluctantly whooping this dude down while he's trying to get out the ring to get his belt and his robe back. And it was just absolutely hilarious. Dick the Bruiser was classic. <laughs> he really was because that, that's the, the TV I grew up with in the city in, in Chicago watching Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher and all that. They were in the AWA. And, of course, Dick had his own territory in um, in Indianapolis and ran shows in Chicago and Milwaukee and in Minnesota and stuff. So, yeah, so he was – there was one Dick the Bruiser story that comes out that I remember, and that is Dick the Bruiser – I believe Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher against the Road Warriors at Comiskey Park, right? So this is like mid-'80s, and so th- clearly Bruiser and Crusher had, had totally passed their time. But the Road Warriors are hot, man. We're talking about early to mid-'80s. I mean, they are the hot tag team, right? So, so before the match <laughs> – Dick the Bruiser comes up to Animal. He goes, hey, I know you guys like to press slam. None of this. And he raises hands over his head. He's like, none of this stuff tonight. None of this stuff tonight. And Animal's like, okay, no problem. You're not going to be off your feet. No problem. 
Of course, it's the Road Warriors, right? So Dick the Bruiser and Crusher are already in the ring doing their thing. They're looking like 60-year-old men, munchkins. <laughs> here come the Road Warriors doing what they used to do. You know, they used to play that Iron Man, and, uh-huh. come, and, and here they come down the, down the ramp. And as soon as they come in, they start beating the hell out of the Crusher and Bruiser, and they raise Bruiser over his head and press slam him. Like either one of those guys haven't been off their feet in like forty years. <laughs> and they beat the hell out of him like they were two jobbers, man. It's just just classic stuff. Like you two old men are not gonna tell me what to do in nineteen eighty four or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Dick the Bruiser was, yeah, again, off, not off their feet for a while, but not until they took on the Road Warriors. So, I, I want to reach out to you, man, because I want to get your thoughts. Because as I saw that um, Larry Madisick had passed away, and that really is kind of the last of the lineage of St. Louis wrestling, I had to talk to you about it. So, thanks for coming. Well, on. I appreciate you giving me a ring, man. I, I, I love catching up with you, and you know, I'll, I'll talk wrestling and St. Louis wrestling, especially all day long if you're given the opportunity. I wish I was there because I would have had me a nice suit on and, you know, bring somebody with the, you know, bring a, a lady with me with a nice dress because that's how it was at St. Louis at the Chase, right? You had to dress with oh, yeah. formal wear. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who's who? It's like it's like uh, going to the Grammys or the Oscars. They were they, to the nines, baby, uh, every day, all day. That's what makes St. Louis wrestling so uh, unique to me because, Courtney, nobody was – no territory had that. Not not Memphis, not Indianapolis, not Portland, you know, not, not California. No one had – you had to sit down, have a meal, dress well to go to a wrestling match. And I know Vince tried to think about that when he when Raw first started. He uh, Bruce Pritchard, I think, brought it up. He said, you know, we really should go back to how it was at the chase. And they tried it, and they're like, no, that's, I don't think we can replicate what they did. And no one's going to be able to replicate that ever again. No, no, it's it's definitely it's definitely its own unique slice of of, of, of time, and you're right, it can't be duplicated. KPLR TV, wow! Back in it was 19- actually named, I believe KPLR was actually named after the people that owned it, which would have been the Coppler family. Yes, the, the KPLR. Yeah, so back to 1959, it started, ran until 1983, then lasted two more years until 1985. Um, yeah. yeah, but yeah, that's amazing. And Larry Madisick, by the way, the same announcer you grew up with, was still promoting wrestling in Southern Illinois until mm-hmm. he passed away. He was sick, and then um, finally, um, you know, he passed away. But yeah, he loved it, man. He was uh, he was one of the main factors of it. So that's 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 some great history right there. Oh yeah, yeah, man. good times. Definitely great memories. I'm glad. Are you going to show your kids St. Louis wrestling? Are you going to show them some of those old clips? You know. Uh, well, my son is 25, and wrestling's not really his thing. But the last two, you know, the three and five, I still got a chance with them. Yes, so. I'm saying. What about them? They're stars. You're you're like fourth in that in that family, fourth or fifth at least. So you should show Man, them. I'm, I'm behind Grammy and, and, and my sister-in-law, and, and Daddy takes a backseat to a whole bunch of people. <laughs> well, I'm just saying. I think just fire up the YouTube and show them what St. Louis wrestling was all about because that that was uh, that was a great territory. And man, as always, thanks so much for coming on the show. And and if there's something St. Louis wrestling or wrestling related, you know, I might I might call you. Okay, I'm I'm available anytime, brother. Keep your phone on, man. We'll do. <laughs> all right, thanks. All right, Johnny. All right. Bye.